When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Anna Georgescu, and welcome to the New Books and Science podcast. Today's guest is Maya Weinstock, author of Carbon Queen, The Remarkable Life of Nanoscience Pioneer Mildred Dresselhaus, published by MIT Press on March 1st. It is a fantastic biography of one of the most distinguished physicists, material scientists, and electrical engineers of her generation, who was also an outstanding leader, mentor, and science advocate. Maya Weinstock is an editor, writer, and producer of science and children's media whose work has appeared in Scientific American, Discover, Space.com, BrainPop, and Scholastic Science World. She is deputy at editorial director at MIT News, a lecturer at MIT on the history of women in science, and creator of LEGO's Women of NASA. Maya, it's great to have you on today. Thank you so much, Anna. I really appreciate it. So tell me, how did you first hear of Millie Dresselhaus? And then I understand that you got to meet her later on. I did. Um, So I had first learned about her when I was a uh, reporter and fact checker and researcher at Discover Magazine back in 2002, so it's actually 20 years ago now. And at the time, the editors of the magazine had planned an article uh, relating to what they were calling the 50 most important women in science at that time. And I was very interested in you know the history of women in science even back then. I was just kind of a, a cub reporter um, going into science journalism. And, you know, so I naturally got assigned to fact check this piece. um, And that is how I initially heard about Millie, because she was one of the 50 women uh, who was, you know, were honored in that list. Um, I don't really remember our interaction. I'm sure I connected with her probably by email just to, you know, fact check her piece. But, you know, each one was pretty short because it was 50 people in a a magazine. Um, So but later I knew about her just because um, in 2014, I joined the staff of MIT News, which is the um, news outlet for the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where Millie was a longtime uh, scientist and uh, professor. And, you know, even though she was technically retired at that time, she was an emerita professor. uh, She was one of those emerita professors who did not, you know, slow down in terms of research. She continued um, publishing papers, 
Um, I don't know when she stopped having official students, but I mean, she was unofficially still very much involved in, in uh, student um, mentorship activities and things like this. And so, you know, when I joined the MIT community, I had known a little bit about her and every now and then would hear something about her either through an article that we would publish on MIT News about her work or some award that she would win. And actually more likely than not, when I would hear about her, it was in regard to an award, something that she either won and, you know, in many cases was the first woman to win such some big award. Uh, not always. And, but then in some cases, <clears throat> the question was, you know, why hasn't she won a Nobel prize? Like every year that, that question kind of came up. Um, so that's kind of how I originally had heard about Millie. Um, later in the year that I joined the MIT news office, um, I, you know, one of my side projects has been since about 2010, um, creating, um, Lego figures in the likeness of real scientists and engineers um, and others in the STEM fields. Uh, and I had made one of Millie and, you know, I tend to photograph them and put them on, on my social media accounts. And um, so I reached out to Professor Dresselhaus and just offered to give her the one that I had made of her. And she emailed me back immediately and said, you know, we have a photo of it that's been printed out and is on my um, bulletin board outside and it gets a lot of attentions. So congratulations. And yes, please come and meet me. So the next day I I brought it in and um, I did get to meet her. And it was the only time that I really spoke with her at any length. Um, But, you know, that was, again, late 2014. Um, It was just a few days before she uh, went to Washington, D.C. to receive the National Medal of Presidential Medal of Freedom from President Barack Obama. And um, I never really did get a chance to speak with her again. But um, at the time, I certainly could not have imagined writing a book about her. Um, But here we are, it's 2022. And I have spent a significant chunk of the last five years um, working on this biography. So it's, um, it's a very rewarding process. and, And now I'm very happy that the book's out there. The photo you mentioned is actually in the book, and it's one of my favorite photos that you include. It's absolutely lovely, and you can kind of see the joy on her face <laughs> with the little figurine next to her. Um, so you, the book follows Millie from her childhood in New York City to kind of her final years in Cambridge, and you focus on her scientific achievements, but also rightfully present her as a multi-hyphenate. She's a resilient student, an adaptive researcher, a professor an administrator, an advocate, a fundraiser, a patent owner, and a book author. That, that's a lot of things. And the accolades are, there's a lot of them. They're plentiful and her involvement in science seemingly boundless. But for our listeners who are not familiar with her work, why is she the carbon queen? Sure, that's a great question. Um, so Millie Dresselhaus, and I will just note briefly that pretty much everyone called her Millie, even though officially, you know, her first name was Mildred. So I will refer to her as Millie throughout. Um But, you know, Millie, um, she made a name for herself as someone who was one of the pioneers in uh, the development of carbon science in in the sense of researching some of the forms of carbon that had not really been known um, when she first started her career in 1960. Uh, And she basically laid the foundations for what is now a very large field of carbon nanoscience. Um, And, you know, she started with um, trying to decipher what was going on with, for instance, the electronic structure of um, graphite, 
which was one of the forms of carbon. Now, carbon can take a number of forms, and some of them have been known for a long time. So, for instance, diamond is a, for, a form of pure carbon, um, but its molecules are arranged differently than uh, in graphite, which is the stuff of the lead inside your pencil. Um, and just clarifying, this, the lead that's inside of a pencil is not made of the element lead, it's made of carbon, <laughs> mostly. Um, so, you know, but there was, uh, almost nothing known really about, um, the electronic structure and the, some of the other properties of, uh, graphite. And she was one of the very first scientists to really look at this. And, um, she later, her discoveries along with some of her colleagues, uh, you know, really laid the foundations for what we now know about. Um, other forms, including um, carbon nanotubes, which are kind of all around us now, um, and graphene, which is, you know, just has exploded in the last five, 10 years in terms of uh, research interest. And, you know, her work early in the 60s and 70s really, you know, formed the basis of what we now um, are, you know, taking for granted, I guess, in the sense of anytime you hear a new piece about some, you know, carbon alloy or whatever that's making a space um, application lighter and more energy efficient, you know, that is all based on her foundational work from the early parts of her career. So for that, she is known as the queen of carbon or the queen of carbon science. And so that's, that's where the title of my book comes from. So you explain many of her research interests in the book, and you also make use of a great deal of helpful diagrams and beautiful imageries to help your readers understand these. So as a teaser, could you tell us why pastries and baklavas are connected to graphite and the Lincoln Laboratory? <laughs> so, um, yes, I mean, so, um, you know, I... My background is actually in biology, and uh, as a science writer, I focus actually more specifically on astronomy, and I was not necessarily uh, extremely fluent in chemistry and uh, materials physics. So when I was thinking of writing this book, I knew that I was going to have to include some analogies along the way just to make things clearer for those of us who you know, are not experts in these areas. So... Um, you know, uh, I am not the first person to come up with the idea of, um, you know, a pastry material as an, an analogy for graphite, but um, and, and related um, uh, related carbon structures. But uh, I really liked that analogy, and I used it in a number of ways throughout the book. So basically, graphite is these layers of carbon that um, contain. Uh, so each layer is considered. Uh, graphene, which is just a single mono layer of atoms that are arranged in sort of a chicken wire uh, uh, arrangement. And within, like in between these layers, uh, the bonds are fairly weak, but within the actual graphene, each graphene layer, uh, the, the, the electronic bonds and the chemical bonds are actually extremely strong. Um, so you know, basically when you have something like a, uh, like a croissant, for instance, you have these many, many layers that, you know, together form something that's relatively strong, relatively, this is not relatively, <laughs> this is taking here. Um, but, uh, so just giving people a sense of, you know, uh, the, the physical structure of something like, uh, a, a sample of graphite. So a bar, an, a barquillo is basically a rolled up, um, 
I don't actually know exactly what goes into barquillos, but they, they're basically <laughs> rolled up pieces of dough that are in the shape of a carbon nanotube. Um, and you know, they're exact, again, it's not an exact metaphor, but, um, as we were going along, you know, one of the things that Millie, for instance, studied, uh, for a significant amount of her career is, um, what's called carbon intercalation compounds. And these are basically, um, concoctions in which, uh, she and her colleagues would add bits of other atoms and other, other elements to, uh, you know, graphite. And just to see what would happen. And uh, it turns out that doing this in a very controlled way, you would create these materials that had very interesting and in some cases very um, uh, useful properties. And so, you know, in my telling of this science, I just decided to use the, the, uh, the pastry analogy kind of as we went along. So that, that is That's a, great. That is, yeah. <laughs> I really enjoyed that analogy. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Um, so there's a lot of applications to her research, um, and you you go over a lot of them. I particularly love the thermoelectrics example because I hadn't thought of it before. But tell me about any one of the more familiar applications of her research that our listeners might have, you know, heard of in the news or like come in contact with before. Sure. Well, I mean, the reality is, and and you know, President Obama famously said this uh, during when he gave her the Presidential Me- Medal of Freedom, is that her work is all around us, and that really is true because um, anything you know relating to carbon nanotubes and and now with graphene, I mean, there are actually so many applications that we really just don't even think about. And there's, an, I would not say that there's one in particular that you know exemplifies. You know, like there are some scientists who, for instance, Stephanie Qualick is known for Kevlar, right? And, and mm-hmm. you know, we know for a Kevlar in certain applications, but we know specifically what that is. And we think of Stephanie Qualick as like the Kevlar scientist. But with Millie, her work was so foundational that, you know, the applications are just kind of all over the place. And I'll be happy to list a few. Um, but for instance, you know, um, she worked for many years on carbon fibers, which are a form of carbon that is uh, a little bit more of a bulk. Uh, so they're a little bit more, they're a little bit bigger than carbon nanotubes. Carbon nanotubes are essentially still just one atom thick. And so they're, you know, on a different scale, but carbon fibers are also in, in still incredibly important. And, um, you know, were part of her work in, again, in the early part of her career. And so carbon fibers have been used in everything from, you know, airplane bodies and spacecraft parts so that they would be stronger and lighter and thus requiring less energy to lift off. Um, And then other things like, you know, um, baseball bats and tennis rackets and certain bicycles and, you know, other like sporting equipment. So those are the kinds of things that, you know, are kind of like every day and all around us. Um, but then when you start thinking about things like the nanotubes that she studied, um, you know, those are found in, in things that are a little bit less like obvious. So for instance, batteries, um, cell phone batteries and laptop batteries, there's a good chance that your, your phone or your laptop might have, excuse me, carbon nanotubes, batteries. Um, there are, you know, completely in another realm, uh, water purification filters. That's something that, um, nanotubes have been used for um, biosensors, things that detect um, DNA and proteins and hormones. Um, What else? Um, One of her students, 
developed something called smart concrete, which is sort of a re- reinforced concrete that has like electrical properties that can actually sense strain. Um, so, you know, you don't necessarily think about these things because in some, in some ways they're part of our infrastructure and they're, you know, kind of invisible, but without the, these, you know, uh, developments, some of the newer technologies, when we say things are cutting edge or, you know, high tech, well, Millie helped to make them high tech. More recently with graphene research, um, you know, there's a lot of development that is still happening and, and, and applications are still like being worked on. But like, for instance, um, you know, uh, flexible electronics are one that graphene is definitely contributing to. Again, graphene is just a single layer of these carbon atoms. Um, and, you know, quantum computing is another application that is still not 100% there yet, but, you know, many, many researchers and many, many fields are very excited about quantum computing. And graphene looks to be able to play a significant role in the development of quantum computers. So, um, so it's, it's kind of all around us. And, um, you know, I could go on for like a long time <laughs> about the applications, but I think just describing the fact that there's so many is gives you a sense of just, you know, the kind of um, impact that Millie had with her research over her career. Yeah, of course. Um, and there, these scientific advancements, they're generally tend to be a team sport, historically speaking, and you present her mentors and her collaborators and credit their influence in the book. There's quite a lot of wonderful characters you introduce, but I think one that stands out immediately because it's so his name's so recognizable is Enrico Fermi. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about their relationship. Sure. Um, Millie Dresselhaus uh, pursued a PhD at the University of Chicago, where um, Enrico Fermi was a professor toward the end of his career and the end of his life. And, you know, Millie was one of, I think she was the only woman in her uh, year uh, at in physics. Um, but, you know, she was joining a very well-renowned physics department. It was, you know, you know, highly regarded, a number of uh, Nobel Prize winners, including Enrico Fermi. And it turns out that they, you know, she took one of his classes or maybe a couple of classes, I'm not entirely sure, but certainly at least one. Um, And she said many times that she learned to think like a physicist um, in taking his classes. She um, talked many times about, you know, developing a sense of um, being able to sort of expand the horizons of your research such that you can be fluent in many areas within physics or chemistry or whatever you're you're deciding to focus your career on such that you know if you ever have a, a you know a new development or something that like changes your focus for whatever reason that you're you're able to kind of take that pivot and you know thrive and that happened to her a number of times in her career and she many times credited um Fermi as a professor and as a teacher uh, with, you know, giving her that outlook. Um, But just on a more personal level, she also used to um, walk with him to school. I don't know if it was daily or every few days, but it was a pretty regular thing. And, you know, she was kind of shy in the sense of, you know, she didn't feel like she could go up to him and just initiate a conversation. So he would actually like, you know, invite her to have a conversation as they were walking over. And so, you know, he, she always thought that that was really welcoming and, um, you know, something that gave her a sense of inclusiveness. Um, and, you know, there are many reasons why she might feel intimidated in, in this situation. And yet he was very 
uh, open to her. And frankly, he was open in terms of um, just soliciting, you know, advice and thoughts from young students across the board. It wasn't just Millie. Um, and he would have parties at his house where his he and his wife would, you know, host folks from physics and other departments and and include, you know, some of the younger students, which was in, unheard of in some cases. I mean, some professors, you know, had would have nothing, you know, would have no desire to sort of consort with the young, you know, young rabble rousers. Um, and but, you know, Fermi had like dance parties and things like that. And so, you know, part of this, unfortunately, Millie only knew him for about a year because he passed away um, very shortly after she joined, you know, her PhD program. Um, but you know, later on in her career, she really mentioned Fermi a number of times as someone who she looked up to and she tried to emulate in terms of her mentorship activities later in her career. And, uh, you know, many people said that she had this familial atmosphere in her lab. She really treated it like a family in many ways. And um, I heard that many, many times. So he really was an extremely influential person in her life. These physicists always stick as thieves. <laughs> yes. Work together, party together, all the right. good things. Um, so there is kind of, I mean, an elephant in the room when you talk about women physicists who started their career in the 1960s, because we know STEM academia is still quite unbalanced. But when we when we talk about the 1960s, we expect some degree of misogyny to kind of be looming over mm -hmm. a young physicists' efforts. Yeah. Um, you make it quite clear in the book that it wasn't just strange looks and comments that she got. There were actual like institutional barriers and people who wouldn't work with her. Um, tell me a little bit about how Millie dealt with that. Sure. Um, well, I mean, it, it happened enough to Millie that um, in some ways she just kind of worked around it. Like, so Millie's personality in general was to find a way to do whatever she wanted to do, whether it was, you know, when she was young, she couldn't, she came from a very poor family and, you know, she was really interested in science and arts and she found a way to go to various museums and other things in New York city that, pay, you know, you had to pay admission. And she, well, she figured out a way to sneak into those places, um, <laughs> even though she couldn't pay. And I feel like with the, you know, issue of women in science, she kind of did the same in the sense of, you know, if you placed a barrier in her way, she was going to find a way around it in some way or form. And I mean, this happened at multiple parts of her career and her, you know, studies. Um, you know, one of the more, one of the, one of the examples that she talked about, you know, more often, I would say, is that her graduate school advisor at University of Chicago was not actually Enrico Fermi. He, he was a professor there, but he wasn't her actual advisor. Uh, technically his advisor, her advisor was um, a man named Andrew Lawson. And he really was one of the the men at the time who felt that uh, you know educating women was going to be a waste of time, and he actually said this to Millie's face numerous times to the point where she was like, "Okay, I guess." How lovely! How you lovely! Um, I mean, I, you know what? What a knock on her confidence. You know, it really, it really did knock her confidence, and to a certain extent, like she didn't know what kind of opportunities she would have to continue a career when she kept on having, I mean, you know, again, he said it again and again, and to the point where she just stopped dealing with him. And she just like, okay, I'm going to go do this PhD all by myself. And, you know, she, she did, and she did rely on other people to help her. But, um, you know, that kind of attitude came up again later when she was a postdoc at Cornell University. Um, you know, meanwhile, she was brilliant. And, you know, every opportunity that she had, she really took advantage of it. 
And she knew that she had to be great. And she knew that she had to be, if not perfect, then close to perfect. And the, the good thing is she really was so, so, you know, fantastic as a scientist that she was able to kind of say like, you know, put her money where their mouth is or, you know, you know what I'm saying? She, she like was able to show the goods, you know, and yeah, nobody, yeah, yeah. nobody could deny her because she, you know, was like acing the exams in, you know, many people in the physics department, for instance, at uh, university of Chicago, like flunked out of the physics program. And she, she didn't, she, she, she managed to pass through, but you know, when she was a postdoc at, uh, at Cornell, um, she, <laughs> one of the professors there uh, claimed that, you know, no woman would ever teach any of my engineering students. And um, I don't, it's probably not the same person, but actually this uh, attitude would be, you know, put to the test not shortly, shortly after, because um, at certain point, you know, I don't, again, I don't think it was the same professor, but some professor in the department she was in, um, you know, had to leave and there was a, an opening for a class um, to teach it. And she, you know, was highly qualified in just both in her research and also in teaching in high school. And in, in, in even earlier, she had become a tutor and was like really excellent at teaching even then. And so she offered to teach it, you know, she offered to teach it, you know, without pay, essentially without extra pay. She was, you know, a, a postdoc and she was like, well, I can teach it, no problem. And so apparently, you know, the professors, all male, like, spoke for about a week trying to figure out whether she should teach this class, not, not whether she could do it, but whether the men, the rest of the men would pay attention to her. Oh my God. <laughs> and so, you know, they finally said, okay, you can teach the class because they really needed someone and she was right there. Um, and so she taught it and, you know, she did an excellent job and she would hear from the, some of the students years and years later, like, I remember that class, you were so amazing, you know? And so these are just the kinds of things that um, unfortunately we're par for the course in those days. And, you know, she did say a number of times that you, you had to have a little bit of a thick skin. Otherwise you knew that you weren't going to be able to have a career in this field. And, um, you know, we talk about imposter syndrome and all that stuff. And I think one benefit with Millie is that she had this amazing sense of confidence, but also boosted by certain people that really kind of encouraged her to kind of go, you know, move past these barriers so including Fermi, including people like Rosalind Yellow, who was her, t her professor at, in college. And then, of course, her, her husband, uh, Jean Dresselhaus, who was also a very longtime uh, collaborator in their, in their research work. So she sort of benefited from having these people help her, but she also did have this general sense of like, okay, I will work around you and find some other way. Um, but yeah, these, these issues did uh, <laughs> affect her for... Uh, you know, certainly the first part of her career. Um, but yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I, I understand that she got, I mean, it's discussed in the book that she was offered tenure at MIT really, really like, soon after joining the faculty. And then she spent a lot of time and put a lot of effort into kind of becoming a mentor and a support for young STEM students at MIT at the time. Right. Yeah. So she joined the faculty in 1967 as a visiting professor after spending some time at the MIT Lincoln Lab uh, focusing on research. And in 1968, she was offered um, full professorship with tenure, which is so incredible to think about because that never happens. So clearly they could see that she was, you know, going to be a standout professor. And she, but you know, her visiting professorship was actually funded in part um, as as a way to encourage women to 
um, join faculty of notable colleges and universities that are focused on research and whatnot. Um, and uh, she felt that she needed to give back to that initiative. So basically, like the fellowship or the the teaching professorship that she had was specifically um, earmarked for a woman, and you know, so she knew that there was a reason behind this and she felt obligated to kind of give back to the MIT community as a result and to try to set out and see what was happening with, you know, students and the very few faculty who were there at the time. Um, one of the first things that she did was she, uh, helped lead something called the women's forum at MIT, which lived for, I don't remember exactly how many years, but you know, a number of decades. And it really was sort of, um, a group that, you know, advocated for women in various positions, whether they were students or faculty or, or staff or, you know, even wives of faculty members. And, you know, she also later, um, with another engineering professor, uh, she started a class called What is Engineering, which was open to anyone and certainly men could take it. But the idea was that women were a lot less likely coming to MIT to have had um, exposure to certain, you know, uh, fields of engineering, so they ne- wouldn't necessarily consider those areas of, you know, of specialty. And so the idea for this class was to really bring engineering to everyone, such that you know, even people who might not have had like their dad have an amazing shop built out in their, you know, backyard <laughs> right. or, whatever, or not their backyard, their their garage. Um, could get, you know, a little bit of an intro and like a taste for what they could do. And that might, you know, if not suggest that they could change into a new, you know, uh, degree program, then certainly they could at least take a couple classes and or maybe even maybe minor in that. And that was very successful. And, um, you know, she that class went on for a number of years, and she co taught it um, with a couple of people. And I think it eventually petered out. But you know, there's. I feel like there are classes that are like that now that are pretty common, um, but at that time it was not very common. And um, so, but you know, throughout her career, she definitely, um, you know, would try to raise up women whenever possible, and also other under, you know, people from underrepresented groups. Um, she worked very closely with, um, you know, uh, international students at a time when it was not necessarily easy to be doing research internationally. We didn't have the internet at that time. Um, And, you know, she actually helped set up research programs in countries that were not traditionally, you know, focused on, let's say, carbon research. Um, And so she maintained just this huge network of colleagues and students and mentees um, who were, you know, just international, um, but also at MIT specifically, you know, she always tried to uh, raise up the profile of, of, you know, people who needed it most. Let's just say that because, you know, um, right. people who had backgrounds who were, you know, not as, uh, not as privileged. So, yeah. Definitely. She also spent a little bit of time in her later years, the later years of her career as an administrator. Um, she was a director of the Department of Energy's like Office of Science. How did she get involved with that? And how, what was she interested in? In various administration roles, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, So she had a couple of administration roles at MIT, but then she also took on some uh, service roles, you know, with service groups for 
affinity groups, let's say, um, you know, nationally. Um, so at MIT, she headed up a materials science center, um, but she actually, you know, really preferred not to go up the ranks in terms of MIT administration because she always wanted to make sure that she was still doing research. It was really mm-hmm. important to her. Um, so, you know, she could have certainly easily, if she wanted, uh, tried to become a dean or, you know, something else, like something higher, a VP or, you know, chancellor or even president. Right. I'm sure she could have done that, but she ended up deciding to focus on research. Um, and then, you know, externally, external to MIT, um, you know, she started with service activities very early in her career for a number of reasons. Um, one is, you know, she would get awards pretty early in her career. She started, you know, she was like um, elected to like, you know, the um, Academy of Engineers, uh, National Academies. She was elected to both the National Academies of Engineering and, and of, of Science. And as part of those elections, you know, you get asked to be on various committees. And so as part of that, you know, she happily served in those roles. And, um, you know, in some cases, she helped to uh, start new um, chapters or new subgroups that focused on inequities for women. And, um, you know, some of those programs are still in existence today. And so, you know, she was always just very interested in um, giving back uh, just based on the fact that she had help along the way when she was growing up. Um, and so, you know, she, she just by the fact that she had so much sort of heft in terms of her research background and her her stature as a professor. Um, but then she also really she excelled, I think, at, you know, networking and supporting younger people. Um, she just, I guess, naturally gravitated toward these opportunities where she could, you know, be someone who might serve as a role model. Um, she was very aware that she was the first person, first woman in many of these um, spheres. And so, you know, she, she took that very seriously. So whenever she had the opportunity to be like a woman in a place where it was all men, she would do it so that, you know, someone else would see her and say, oh, I could do that too. Um, so, you know, when it comes to like the office of science, she was um, she was selected by then President um, Clinton, uh, Bill Clinton, to uh, serve as the uh, director of the Department of Energy's Office of Science, and that was you know a great role for her. She wasn't in it very long because it was at the very end of President Clinton's uh, term in office. Um, but you know it just was an example of something in which she would go around and visit people around the country. And, you know, of course, serve in, in roles in D.C., um, just in terms of organizing, you know, what what the Office of Science was going to do budget wise and also just priority wise. Um, and so, yeah, she, she she took on these kinds of roles like throughout her career. Her CV has this really long section of all her service activities. <laughs> and I mean, you know, you can't even begin to mention all of them in a book. Um, so I just picked a few to to include. But. You know, it was really impressive. I mean, she she really you know made friends and made connections in a lot of different ways, and I think these service activities really um, helped that. Yeah. So you talked a lot with her um, grandchildren and children, and you really combed through a lot of her interviews. I saw very detailed um, work you did in putting this book together. Tell me a little bit about the process of that. Sure. Um, 
So this book was uh, not something that I had planned. It actually came to me, and I'm very grateful to my colleagues at the MIT Press who were interested in a biography of Millie. Um, Initially, the idea was that this book could be a brief biography that basically covers the greatest hits of her career and that I wouldn't need to do any original research for it because she had so many... um, you know, interviews and oral histories and, and articles about her um, going back into the 60s. Um, but the reality is, as someone who is a writer and who is just genuinely curious about her, I couldn't not like try to get a little bit more of the inside story, frankly, and of her life. And I had been very curious, you know, how she how she came to this position. What was her, you know, original background, which you know, she, her parents came to the United States right at the time of the Great Depression. They were immigrants from areas that were devastated by the Holocaust and World War II. And thankfully, they survived. But Millie, her family grew up with very, very, very little. They were, you know, living mostly in the Bronx in, you know, at a time when things were just really tough. You know, they had a hard time putting food on the table. And I didn't know a lot about this, but I was curious about like just her upbringing and, and what made her tick and, you know, how she had become so renowned. And so I was really interested in going like all the way back. And of course, you know, her family is going to know the most about this. So they were very generous with their time. And um, they offered me a number of resources of, of just, you know, stories. And one of her granddaughters has this amazing timeline that she's created of, you know, all of Millie's academic activities, which is just a a sight to behold. She actually printed it out for this event. There was a memorial event in the end of 2017, and she printed it out. And it was like the entire length of the large um, conference area that that we were in. (laughs) You can imagine me also trying to like, look at it on my laptop, like scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling because her career was so, so long and multifaceted. But yeah, it was wonderful. You know, I got to get some beautiful photos, which we are we were able to share in the book. And then, yeah, I did I did quite a bit of just my own research, looking into the actual papers that she wrote. Trying, I mean, I can't I can't say that I read all of them word for word because that would be untrue. Because frankly, <laughs> she had seventeen hundred papers, so it would have been impossible. Oh my god! But you know, also, I really knew that I wasn't going to be able to get too in depth into the science because I just didn't have that much space. I did actually have a of, you know, max word count that I actually went past by 20,000 words. And thankfully, (laughs) thankfully, the MIT press decided to keep it in. So that's it it evolved. The project definitely evolved. And you know, I had my life changed over the time that I wrote the book. So you know, it took a little longer than I had uh, envisioned. But you know, (laughs) it's here now, and I'm very proud of it. And so it's just been wonderful hearing people's impressions of of how it's gone over with them as they've read the read along. Well, congratulations. The book is a masterful blend of anecdotes, scientific explanations, and inspiring stories about a truly phenomenal subject and scientist. What are you working on now? What's next? Oh, great question. Um, Well, uh, I actually have a manuscript done for a children's version of this book. So I am working on trying to get that uh, published. Um, so that is my next project. But um, honestly, the book, you know, the the adult version took me so much time um, that I am definitely taking some much needed time off of, you know, major projects for a little bit. Um, and I do hope to um, teach the class that I taught at MIT back in 2017, again, in the spring. Uh, 
I have to do a bunch of things to get that, you know, squared away, but that is my goal. So I do have some, some things I'd like to work on, but I think, you know, for a little while I will be, you know, on the quiet side in terms of producing new things. What Um, is your class called? uh, It's called history of women in science and engineering. And it's just a survey course. Um, And, you know, it's meant for people with no real background in this. Uh, When I taught it last time, it was a, an equal mix of undergraduates and grad students. Um, So yeah, I think it's a fun class and probably update the syllabus a little bit uh, since it's been five years, but you know, we did some fun things like visit the MIT museum and see some of the, and, and the Harvard museums and um, you know, some of the other area. Um, I mean, there's so much history of women in this particular, I live in, in the Cambridge area and Boston area, and there's a lot of history here with uh, women in the sciences. So uh, that's kind of an exciting, exciting path too. Thank you so much, Maya. It was lovely to have you on this episode. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. To all of our listeners, I'd like to end with my favorite quote from the book, which belongs to the Carbon Queen herself. Devotion to science as we do it is a kind of craziness. Maya Weinstock's Carbon Queen is now available for purchase. I hope you'll read it and fall madly in love with the late Mildred Dresselhaus and her work. (laughs) 